Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm very pleased to be joined by Jhumpa Lahiri, who is known best here as a Pulitzer Prize winning author of novels and short stories, but here she's with us as an anthologist. She's just publishing The Penguin Book of Italian Short Stories. And Jhumpa, the first thing I first most obvious thing to ask is, Italian is not your first language. You've, you know, you're a Bengali American, and you came to Italy several years ago. It started. What is it that made you want to write or collect Italian short stories? And what do you think, kind of coming in as someone who isn't at first in the Italian tradition, kind of brings to that project? Well, as I explain in the in the introduction to this volume, I I, I first wanted to for my own purposes, sort of gather together writers I had been discovering, right, uh, on this Italian adventure, which for me very much involves reading and knowing better the literature, the literary tradition. And so I already had an, a vague idea to, to put together a book like this. And then I think what motivated me even more was the experience of teaching at Princeton and wanting to share with my students, some remarkable authors that I was very excited about and wanted to talk about and wanted to, to know what they thought about these authors and, and, uh, and wanted to use as models for writing and reading in general. And so then the difficulty, the frustration at times of trying to find those authors in translation, the growing realization that there wasn't actually a whole lot readily available in English outside sort of handful of, of names and authors, Italian authors who had sort of safely and securely made the voyage into English. The fact that there were so many more, so many, many more that were very exciting to me. This then became a mission. So I already had this sort of, you know, desire to put a book together along these lines. And then it was very serendipitous because Penguin Classics approached me at the end of my first semester, my first year, sorry, of teaching at Princeton. And so it was perfectly timed. And then I threw myself into it. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, can we talk a little about your, your own journey into Italian itself? Because you, you've written a book about this, a memoir of your time. Was it 2012 you moved to Italy? I did. I moved to Rome in 2012 with my family, wanting to uh, improve my Italian. <laughs> this was this was the mission, and also wanting to live in another place, experience another kind of life. Um, I had lived really my f- entire conscious life in in the United States and in a very you know relatively restricted part of the United States in the Northeast. I knew other places. I knew London. I knew Calcutta as a kind of regular and long-term visitor, uh, but I had never really lived in any other place, and I wanted to. I, I felt that that was something that was missing in my life. And I also had an increasing wish to really be able to speak Italian and speak it well, and, and so that's what took me there. This was more than a hobbyist interest. I mean, you've it, spoken it, about it as almost, you know, it gave you a reason for living almost. You know. It just, you know, it, 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 at a certain point, things take over your life and, and begin, begin to uh, command more time and energy. And I think with everything that I've done, 
I mean, it was like that with writing as well, you know. I mean, I was very unsure of myself as a as a younger person, as a young person. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but, you know, sometimes I would write, and then I wouldn't, and then I would go back to it, and then I would leave it. and And then at a certain moment, something happened, the reaction was successful, and then all I wanted to do was write. So likewise, at a certain point, learning Italian became a priority. So that's what took me to Rome, uh, much of what took me to Rome. And then in Rome, all sorts of things started happening. Um, Namely, I started experimenting with the language in a written form, you know, for my own creative purposes. And so then that was a very unexpected development. Right. Well, you've gone on and written a novel in Italian and a memoir in Italian. Did I mean, was that a sense of almost right? I've got English down. I want to try and do, you know, no, do something else. No, no, not at all. It wasn't. I didn't think of it that way at all. I don't think I've got English down at all. I don't think one can ever really master language. Language is too big and too great and too. I mean, it's impossible. I mean, maybe. You know, if you're someone like Shakespeare, okay, he he pretty much understood and did what he did, pretty much all one could possibly do with the English language. I will give him that. But for the rest of us, you know, sort of mere mortals writing, I don't think, I don't think even in English, I mean, there's so many things one can do with just one language. Um, One can experiment, change direction, style, register, tone. So it wasn't about that. It was about it was about finding another point of view. It was about getting out of a certain way, certain sets of expectations, I suppose, writing in a certain way, being feeling maybe a little bit boxed in by how I wrote in English and what I wrote about in English, wanting to feel very far from those things, from is, the yeah. Is it your experience that you know, as sometimes crudely put, a particular language gives you a particular set of things you can express or ways of looking at the world. I is are your Italian eyes different than your English eyes? Does it I mean it's a kind of crude version of the Sapia Wolf idea? It's really just the difference between living your life at home and living your life while travelling. So writing in Italian for me is a kind of state of constant travel. And I have a, that that attitude toward it as a kind of, you know, it, it, it stimulates you in ways that being at home cannot possibly stimulate you because you have to change your entire posture and you have to live differently and you have to live with less and you have to, and, and because of that, you're open to certain things that you wouldn't normally be open to at home. But you, So you give up a certain ease, right, sense of things being familiar at hand, you know where things are, and 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 what you gain is is um, the absence of that, and feeling more. I feel more alert in some sense. I am more alert in Italian. I don't know it as well. I'm. It's a constant state of exploration and discovery, and falling down and getting up again. And and I think this is good for for me, for one in general. I think it's good to have that muscle. And then it's led me to so many incredible things. 
especially as a as a reader you know i mean the the ability to you know first to speak italian well enough to make friendships right that's sort of the first step and then those friendships lead me to discovering so many authors that i would never have come across otherwise and then the reading of them and then the talking about them and so now there's this wonderful accumulation of just new new fonts of of inspiration uh new directions so one of the things you talk about the end that discoveries that you wouldn't have expected to make and your your discovery that when you were trying to give you know certain italian writers to your students at princeton you found that you couldn't find them in translation how i mean you must have quite an acute sense by now of how partial or limited the anglophone world's view of italian literature is i mean what are we what are we not seeing are we getting i mean i know for example you know anglophone readers of scandinavian literature get an awful lot of crime you know we we think that everyone's been murdered all the time is there a sort of italian equivalent are we seeing like one wedge of it well i mean i think what what i realized maybe it's an obvious thing but is that so much is con- is connected to the market and sort of commercial success because you know what gets translated is so often linked to you know first success in the in the home country right and then um so a book does well and then it does so well that then it sort of graduates and gets a passport right and then it goes to book fairs and things and then you know there are other editors from other countries and then they say who are your best books that deserve to cross the border and come into our countries too and we should know so sort of this is sort of the mechanism right and so as a result i think is right. that quite genre specific i mean are there particular books that the anglophone market looks for i mean which books get a passport i mean look umberto eco definitely got a you know a, a passport full of stamps and became a bestseller throughout the world calvino likewise for very different reasons and now we have the phenomenon of of elena ferrante but there's so much more right and and i think i wanted to shine light on on other voices other writers you know and obviously this book is you know it's an anthology curated in english for english readers but but in fact this anthology is also about to come out in italian and everything so the stories will be in the original language and everything i've said about them will has been now converted into italian because so many of these authors have have become uh, you know basically lost also in italy so that's what i think is you know makes this volume a little bit unconventional because it really i really did just follow my instincts and my 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 tastes and my interests uh, thematic interests and and so when i talked to even italians about the book and the list and you know and i have yet to meet anybody who said to me yes i know all of these authors and all of their works right maybe they say i know some of these authors i've heard of some of these authors i've always meant to read some of the you know so it's interesting of course you know any kind of selection like this you you leave certain people out you put certain people in but i tried to portray a group that spoke to me 
very directly and powerfully. Each of these writers. It's a roughly hundred year span, we should say, with people. Yeah. Nobody living in it. Nobody living. I took out at first. I wondered whether to make it a kind of combination of of the living and the dead, and then I thought, this is. I have to be a little, you know. I mean, I have to eliminate certain variables and so that that made it clear and then I thought because my point of entry as a reader into Italian literature was very much based in the 20th century so I thought well this was my starting point why don't I just get to know it better and so the volume grew, grew around that. One of the many things that I mean there are many things I don't know about Italian literature many many of them but one of the things that's sort of leapt out at me was you saying that actually in a way, if I'm paraphrasing your introduction right, the the novel is less central than the short story to the Italian tradition. Is that is that fair to? Yes, I mean, in that the short story can be, you know, the roots of the short story can go way back to Boccaccio and earlier, you know, to a sort of medieval tradition of very short tales, sort of based on the Bible or other traditions, folkloric, sort of chivalric type tales. I mean, so so there is this first sort of gesture coming out of Italy in terms of writing in a very brief form, you know, the, the idea of the racconto. Um, you make a distinction between the racconto and the, is it novella, the, yes, the other word for a short story? Yes, the Can other you? word for a short story. So the racconto... I think it really sort of reaches its 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 pinnacle in the 20th century. That is my sense. I mean, there were other authors writing short stories, Verga, who's in this volume, D'Annunzio, and others. But I think the 20th century authors really embraced this word and this form. And it's um, one that's very voice-driven. Well, I think there's a sense of something to say. There's a sort of urgency to the racconto which is why the word remains in everyday Italian as a way of saying, oh, let me tell you what I did over the weekend. You know, fammi raccontare questa cosa. So it's something, it's not a word that exists, you know, up on the bookshelves. It's a word that is, that is right here with us. So I was struck by that, which is why in Italian, the anthology will be called Racconti Italiani. And that's already saying something just as the the volume um, the volumes edited by Enzo Siciliano, uh, which were very much a point of reference for me. Primo Levi, I mean, in some sense there there are a couple of sort of dominant figures who who have sort of driven this project for me. He was one of them. Um, my connection to him, to Primo Levi, and to Vittorini, who assembled on his end, an amazing anthology called Americana of 33 American authors translated into Italian for the first time. That was a kind of groundbreaking, revolutionary work, if you will, um, that opened the floodgates under fascism as an act of resistance, literary and political. You mentioned writing under fascism and the import of these American voices at the time. I mean, my impression is that the the war and the period of fascism under Mussolini was, you know, is a sort of a dark centre of gravity to the history of Italian literature in the 20th century. How did it affect it? I mean, was it 
were we in a condition as with you know under Stalinism where there are sort of effectively state-approved writers and you know proper art got killed or was was it more complex than that? Well, I mean, Jews could no longer publish, right? So you have people like Natalia Ginsburg writing under a pseudonym. There's a story in here as well, actually. You have writers, Jewish writers, needing to move around a lot to and and go into hiding even to avoid deportation. You have a writer like Primo Levi who is, you know, in fact, deported. You have writers who are trying to help writers who aren't able to publish. Um, You have writer Vittorini, who was not Jewish, but he curated this volume, which was censored by the fascists until someone else, um, another critic who was in favor with the fascists, wrote the introduction. And then it was actually published by Bompiani. So, So it was just a constant dark force, yes. But, you know, to look at the bright side, I think it, they were dark times that, that stimulated, that, that goaded these writers, so many of them, to, to fight back and to open up, open up what literature was. And opening up what literature is is really opening up what, who we are and what the world is. And they did that. And the, the 30s in, in Italy, the 1930s, was, um, you know, it's called sort of the, it's, it's famous for sort of just the, 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 the fervid translation that was happening that sort of started up in that period. Like a reaction to nativism is to make the language more Exactly. Porous more porous, you know, let's translate, let's translate Fitzgerald, let's translate Melville, let's translate Hemingway. And, and these authors became mythic in the Italian imagination and still have enormous influence. I don't know a single Italian writer or forget, I mean, even beyond writers, but but just if we focus on sort of the literary community that I've come to know, well, I don't know a single Italian writer who has not read and really grappled with a book like Moby Dick, with Hemingway, with Fitzgerald, etc. I mean, you know, that is so not the case in America. <laughs> that is so not the case. I there I there are no I cannot say the same. Well, there is that Milan Kundera line in the curtain, isn't there, about the, the parochialism of small nations and the parochialism of large ones. And, yes, you know. and and so that is very much true. But but so they were they were hard times, they were dangerous times, they were terrifying times. But but at the same time, I wanted to, I wanted to cast light and and really salute some of these writers who who went out of their way and and risked great things to translate, to, to, to start up magazines and journals in which foreign authors were promoted, in which Jewish authors were still published, you know, all of these, all of these acts of resistance in the face of, of the reality of fascism and, and their, you know, desire to close off and control as much as possible the, the literary landscape, the language itself. You talk about being quite open in the introduction of the book, to, saying you didn't want to sort of as it were, censor the content of the book. I mean, most of the problematic material you've talked about is not political, actually, in here, but you said, you know, there's a lot of these stories with sort of attitudes to women or depictions of women that, you know, you don't like that, but that's part of the story. Do you think that's of its time, or is there a sort of Italian tradition of those representations that's uncomfortable? What were you thinking of when you mentioned that? I just believe in 
engaging with with reality and i think um i think curating too finely weeding out it's it's its own sort of censorship right and i don't believe in that i think i what i wanted to honor was great writing an amazing you know one of europe's great literary traditions a, a certain form uh, genre the short form and a wide array of voices you know, I, I think it's important to put in stories that make us think back to, oh, yes, there was a time in which women were regarded as, you know, as this and this way or that way, as opposed to the way we we have, I hope, if, you know, come to think differently and, and, and with greater tolerance about a whole host of things. But I think if we stop thinking about it altogether, well, then that's kind of tantamount to neglecting history. Right, and I think literature is a form of history. It's a form of documentation. It's a form of, it's a way to tread back over times, attitudes, notions, actions, behaviors. That if we lose touch with them, if we lose sight of them, we lose sight of who we who we are and how we even got here. So, so that was important for me to put things, you know, to to create a mix that wasn't necessarily entirely comforting right I, I don't like this idea of literature being comforting as if it's a you know it's a sofa with a nice blanket next to it that's not my idea of of of, of what literature is um, I think I'm more you know <laughs> adhere to the the Kafka side of you know of literature being something violent and and startling and necessary so I felt that these stories needed to be you know they need to make us think um, something else you picked up on, which is a distinction between the two. You say most, of, I mean, a lot of the writers you describe, A, are, are themselves translators or working uh, literature, or are sort of involved in the publishing world or have other jobs that there isn't a sort of, you know, writing and publishing is close together and you don't have that sort of sense of professional writers. There isn't right. a sort of MFA. They've all got other jobs or, you know, in the case of Calvino, you know, their other job is midwifing other people's literature. Yes, yes. Um, how is that how does that do you think affect the literary tradition and do you think it's it's something that will keep going i mean is it sustainable or are we going to see mfas suddenly popping up in italian universities mm, maybe not in my lifetime but maybe in my kids i mean the the the, the force is so great you know just this idea of turning writing into a kind of uh, a learnable craft degree legitimizing it that way I mean you teach it professionally so you presume you buy into that to an extent well I teach undergraduates and I actually don't teach them creative writing much to their dismay and frustration I teach them how to read and I make that quite clear I say I'm a writer I'm a writer because I'm a reader and in my class I'm going to make you read Maybe write a few things, maybe exercise, you know, a small muscle here or there, creative muscle. Um, but I'm very, I'm very clear about that because I know that I would never have become a writer had I not learned how to read. The people I'm most indebted to in my life as a student are the professors who taught me how to read and taught me how to respect, revere literature. And this is the only thing that made me a writer. Eventually, yes, you know, I took writing classes, I got feedback, I had encouragement, criticism, I like this, this convinces me less. That kind of interaction was helpful to me later. 
but not that wasn't what made the writer. Does that make sense? So, so in in my case, you know, I teach at Princeton. One of the reasons I teach there and, and not anywhere else is because there is no MFA program there. It's just they're young people, undergraduates who maybe some of them will go on to be writers, but so many of them don't. So many of them are there to just have an experience, try their hand at something, and they're going to go on to do who knows what, all sorts of disciplines, majors, students, and I like that. But again, my focus has always been on reading. And this book, again, I mean, it was... It, so do you it, think they're richer and more various as a result of essentially being writers in, as it, amateurs or rather than as professionals? I, I think, I mean, I'm very struck by the, the, the different model that I've come to, you know, see and it's come to know in, in Italy, and especially the model of these authors in the 20th century. I, I mean, I think the thing that struck me most and was the fact that they were all almost all of them were translators and i think how can i say this i mean among the various changes the various shifts and um, things that have that have um, grown out of my italian chapter is that that i too have become a translator and i've become a passionate translator and i'm very very stimulated by translation and and it feels very natural to me now that I have the you know the language that enables me to to dive into that sea I have the skills at least to you know to confront the challenge because it remains a constant challenge to translate anything no matter how well you know the language but I was so struck by just people scratching their heads when I said you know I'm translating you know why are you doing that do you not have any ideas? Are you, do you have writer's block? Why would you do that? You know, but it's somebody else's work, but, but you're a writer, you know? <laughs> and so it, I was really struck by those, those comments and I'm still struck by those comments. Whereas I think in, in the Italian context, and it is less now, I have to say, sadly, but, but, but the 20th century was truly in Italy, truly rem- remarkable time because everybody, there was just, I don't know, people were more at ease being different, more than one thing. And so, yes, they were translators, they were writers, they were editors of newspapers, they were would start up literary journals. They did so many other non-literary things as well. Of course, we have the great example of someone like Primo Levi, someone like Gadda, scientists, trained, you know, fully trained, capable scientists. There are politicians, there are... There are artists, many visual artists, people who begin as visual artists or continue to practice, you know, who, who, who paint, who express themselves in other ways. So Lala Romano, you say, was a mm-hmm. visual artist and she went blind and said... Lala Romano started as a painter. Uh, I've been to her house. I've seen her paintings. You know, a woman of great talent, clearly as an artist... And then she became a writer. Her her studio was bombed during the war. And then she she shifted into writing and translating. She translated Flaubert. Uh, in fact, translating Flaubert was something that she said sort of inspired her to move into the writing of prose. She also wrote poetry. I think there's just greater, or there was, my sense is that there was greater tolerance for a sort of mm, state of you know, 
ongoing experimentation and crossing of, of borders, even within your little world of, you know, things you have to offer. So there was more fluidity. And, and I think the fact that they were all translators was one of the defining qualities of, of these authors and their interest, not only their capacity to read and appreciate literature in more than one language, but the time, the energy they devoted to, you know, bringing other literature liter- literature into, into Italy, because it's a sort of mission in a way, right? Because you believe in something else. You believe in something other than yourself, which I think is normal. <laughs> but I think that there's something distressing to me about what being a writer has come to mean in our society. And I didn't, it didn't interest me anymore. And I wanted to spend my time and energy being a writer in a different way. And that's what I'm doing now. You do it very well. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that book's podcast. If you did, I very much hope that you'll subscribe to us on your podcast provider. And if you liked it, especially if you liked it, please rate and review it very favourably indeed. We also have a special offer. We can provide a £20 John Lewis voucher if you subscribe to 12 issues of the magazine for just £12. So that's practically an £8 bribe to read The Wonderful Spectator for 12 weeks running. And you just need to go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. <laughs>